Uh, let me go ahead and pull up this. I, I made some adjustments because um, I, and this is not to gain sympathy. This is a, an honest reflection. Um, I'm not quite sure how well uh, my messages are being taught or landing with everybody. Because it's a little bit hard when I don't have a whole lot of feedback to know whether or not it, it is moving to your heart or it's a blessing to you. And I'm not asking just for compliments. So what I'm asking for is whether or not it is a blessing to you. And so my goal in being up here, I already know this material. I've already prepared it. I've already done it. And when I teach it, I still get transformed. But my real goal in being here is that you are blessed and that you are transformed. If you're blessed and transformed, I'm great, whether or not I didn't get anything out of it or not. And so I was trying to kind of clean some things up. I kind of took the approach as we walked into the series um, as saying, oh, look, we have an hour together. A lot of us have known the Bible a lot. Let's kind of do a meandering walk through the life of Moses. And so it was kind of slowing everything down, being a little bit messy and stuff. And I thought, well, see how that goes. So tonight I'm going to try to tighten things up a little bit, but I want to begin by just asking how everybody is doing. Is there anything that you are hearing through this message, anything, let's say, about last night's message that resonated with you, anything that kind of pinged with you that you said, man, I really feel like that was something that God had me kind of chew on. Anybody got any of those? Anybody have any blessings? Yes, sir? God. Yeah, he has a purpose when things unfold. Everything tends to look really random. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, the phrase chaotic mathematics? Anybody ever heard of chaotic mathematics? It's a very high-level concept that there are things that are in this world that seem random, but when they're fully analyzed, there is order in the mess. Um, I believe that that is in general kind of how God works with us. Why'd that happen? Oh, that was random. That was random. I think from God's point of view, there's not a lot of random. I think it looks pretty orchestrated. Yeah? Anybody else? Anything that pinged out? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, reflecting on, uh, we were talking about the story of dragging the log into the water, and that made it sweet. You remember the bitter water at Mara? And then we were talking about the link, the prophetic link and the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ on the cross and why it was a tree and why it, you take the cross and you put it into a bitter situation and it makes it sweet. Remember that? That's good. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you were my morning encouragement in the gym. Um, that she said, God doesn't want us to just know about him. He wants us to know him. He, he wants to keep drawing us closer and closer and closer. And one of the things that we bonded on this morning was that everything comes down to relationship. If we're going to go out of here with more trivia, we lost. 
if we come out of here with a true love of Jesus or letting him know us and becoming uh, open before him, that's transformative. That's something beautiful, and that's what we're trying to get to, right? All comes back to relationship. Yes, sir. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yes, um, I was reflecting, I think we were even talking about it, I don't know if it was last night or who I was talking about it with, the Paul's thorn in the flesh. Um, Paul was ultimately saying, if you guys remember this story, he said, I have a, something that's sent by God that's tormenting me, meaning whether it was a physical ailment or an internal processing issue, we don't, nobody knows what it is, but it was so bad that he prayed to God, I, would you please remove it? And he prayed to him three times. And after the third time, God's like, we're not talking about this anymore. No, the answer is no. And that's rough, right? Because he's like, but this is hurting. This is hurting me. And then later on, he reflects on it and he said, you guys, do you know how anointed I am? Do you understand? I speak in tongues more than all of you. I do radical miracles. I have seen things in the heavens that would blow your mind. And God has allowed this to keep me attached and not become a monster not become big-headed, that it's actually in the pain and the training of that that has allowed me to know my Lord and that I believe that he has shown himself to me in my weakness, in my sorrow, that I've truly learned about my God. And I, t absolutely, you nailed it. Yes, that sometimes when we're going through those pain and those difficult times, we say, but Lord, why? And he said, because I'm drawing you near. You're going to see a lot of that training in Moses. Remember, God can use a donkey, but he would love to use a fully on fire child of his. Amen? Yeah. Anybody else? Some thoughts that, you, that are resonating in your spirit. Anything else? Test to prove character. Yes. Yeah, so we were talking about, it keeps saying God tested them, God tested them. And you're like, well, is it that God doesn't know and he's trying to figure it out? No. He's revealing character, but at the same time, he's training them. The testing was a training. Yes, somebody said something over here. Yes. Yes. Yeah, she was talking about how uh, on the first morning that I taught here, I talked about how Moses had all these defenders. He, they happened to be a bunch of ladies, right? If you remember, the midwives protected him as a little baby, and then his mom protected him, and then Miriam protected him, and, and then Pharaoh's daughter protected him. After all those defenders, he should have never really been alive. But God put in defenders for him, and I was explaining that I have an intercessor team that prays for me and fasts every day of the week. They rotate. And that's the only reason I'm still in ministry after all these years, you know, going on 30 years of ministry. Well, why is that? Well, because I have people interceding and shielding me. We even covered the story uh, where Moses had his arms up, but he got too tired. And Aaron and her had to keep his hands up because we can't do it in our own strength. It's, there's a reason why it's a body of Christ and not a bunch of lone wolves for Christ. Yeah? 
All right. Well, thank you. Honestly, just hearing what you're receiving allows me to know that, that it is landing, that the Holy Spirit is drawing things in, and He is using His Word in a powerful way. All right, so we're going to be reading a little bit. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be reading a little bit as we get into this, but I want to start out with some concepts, and I believe that you could resonate with this. Being an active Christian is really difficult. Um, it's one thing to say, I just believe. It's another thing to say, I serve the King of Kings, and I'm out there doing my best. It's actually really tiring. And you got to ask, why? Why is it hard to be an active Christian? Simple answer. Broken people, broken world. That's it. It's not magical. It's not like God asked you to do something impossible. It's not like God put you in to frustrate you just to fail. As a matter of fact, you are bringing God's good into a broken situation. That resistance creates exhaustion. Paul even talked about, he said, man, when I get towards the end of my life, I feel like I've been poured out like a drink offering. You remember that? And it was this idea of being like wrung out. He's like, man, I've gone through it. It's been very, very difficult. And there are, I believe that every Christian is a leader. You are a leader of yourself and you are a leader of others. By definition of being a Christian, you are a leader of other people. Why? Because leadership is influence. When the Holy Spirit is in you, he wants to change the world through you. You may be changing it as a mom. You may be changing it as a dad. You may be changing it as a child. You may be changing it with your friends. You may be, you understand what I'm saying? Everyone is a leader. You're all influencing somebody, whether you have a label or a title on your door or not, doesn't matter. You are a leader. The first person you need to lead well is yourself, yeah? There's three kind of difficult aspects of trying to lead ourselves. I, I entitled the first one, Resistant Flesh. Do you remember when Paul the Apostle said, I feel like there's a war inside my head. I want to do the right thing, but I can't. I feel like, like I'm always sabotaging my efforts, right? And I feel like there's this war of good and evil in my mind. And it's, and it's exhausting. The second thing I thought about was our embarrassing sin. How many times have you just felt the impact of embarrassment and humiliation that you are more like the book of Judges than you ever thought? Here's what I mean. Judges goes through the same cycle and they do the same sin over and over and over again. And you're like, man, if I was only a better Christian, I would switch up my sin, <laughs> right? But, but you can tend to fall into the same trap. And it's super funny. It's kind of like Satan's like, wow, I... I don't really have to do a lot. <laughs> you kind of just walked into it every time. It's the same one. Oh, look, you fell through the carpet hole, right? We have these patterns, and there's a reason about what's longing in our spirit that we lean towards things to try to self-satisfy. So we get into the same bondage over and over. The third thing I think that's hard is when we have beautiful intentions but poor follow-through. We get so excited and so fired up. Do you guys remember the time that uh, Jesus is like, hey, guys, lock up, we're going to Jerusalem. Thomas is like, we will die for you. <laughs> it was like such an extreme response. He's like, we're ready to die for you. And it's almost like Jesus had to pause for a second and go, right, about that. I appreciate that, buddy. That's so sweet for you to say that. You're all going to abandon me. And if you remember, like, Peter is like, if everyone else does, I'm the guy. And he's like, no. 
spirit is willing, flesh is weak. And, and so I think that when we're trying to personally lead ourselves, we keep going, man, am I doing it wrong? Why is it so difficult? Maybe I'm just a bad Christian. I think you're just a human Christian. And I think it's okay. And so once again, I think that what's so important is not that we, if you try to avoid falling down, you're probably going to live a lie. You understand what I'm talking about? Because you gotta keep up image for everybody else. You're gonna fall. The question is, what are you gonna do when you fall? Are you gonna rise back up? Yep. All right. Well, when we lead other people, there is one primary reason why leading other people is madness. And that is because when you're leading for God, it is never a straight line and it's always bumpy. We always think that, God, you're trying to get us from A to B. And he said, actually, that's not true. I'm getting you from A to Z and there's an awful lot of stops in between. And it always feels like two steps forward and maybe two steps back. Doesn't it? I mean, you're out there and you're trying to lead somebody. You finally get everybody on board and then somebody squeals out and does something. Ah, I thought we were all in agreement. Man, trying to herd cats. You know what I'm talking about? Like just trying to do leadership. I've been in leadership my whole life. And I never feel like anyone is ever going to own it the way that I own my own vision that God gave me. And I get frustrated at them. But why would I expect that they would own my vision God gave me the same way I would? And so because of that, they tend to be a little squirrely. And that's frustrating because you go, well, if you really loved me, if you really trusted me, you would do everything I tell you to do. That's simply unrealistic. I've just, uh, I think I mentioned it to you, I've just been, I just wrapped up two months sabbatical uh, every seven years. We do sabbaticals. This is my third one uh, through our church. And while I've been gone, we just have had a natural time when people have stepped off our staff. So I'd open up my phone while I'm up here. Oh, somebody else left. Oh, somebody else left. And it, I have to make difficult decisions. And I know theoretically it's going to cause people to leave, but it still bothers me when they go. I've never been able to detach the personal piece to it. I've always felt like it was personal. But the truth of the matter is, is that God is calling me to lead who he would give me down a pathway. And sometimes he has a different calling for them. So I just want to encourage you, whatever, let's say you're leading in your family and you're like, man, I got three kiddos, two of them are really following the Lord and one of them just, what is happening here, right? That's a little maddening because you go, wait, I've loved them all the same. They all had the same experience. They all had the same, they didn't. They're in their own journey with the Lord. And sometimes for that personality to own it, they have to go on a different journey. But it's scary, huh? Because the number one thing we want for our kiddos and our grandkiddos is for them to love Jesus. Yeah? But I'll tell you, no matter what leadership you're in, if your heart's in it, it's always scary when it doesn't go right. So we're going to read uh, a series of stories here, just three of them, where Moses is kind of pushed 
and pushed and pushed. You're going to find him finding it a little maddening, and you're going to find God starting to lose it a little bit. And these people are a little bit uh, rebellious, if we'll say. Um, All right, so each time they kind of get into a lockup, immediately it goes into the blame game. Uh, They attack Moses, Moses attacks God. In general, we talked about that a couple nights ago. Be careful on that pattern because I think that God's your greatest help. Be careful on the idea of going, God, it's your fault. He's like, careful with that, kiddo. Not so sure that's true. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. All right, so where we pick up our story this evening is we have 1.5 million people about, and we are setting off from the mountain. Remember, they just had the big scary Mount Sinai. They just got the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. And he's like, and go, right? So this is going to begin their great journey. They are one year and one month out of Egypt, and they're just getting rolling. They're setting out, and they said, all right, As we go, we're going to organize the camp, everybody by tribe. We're all going to move in an organized fashion. Whenever the cloud moves of God, we got to pick up our tents. We got to go with him. Whenever he settles, we settle. Where are we going? I don't know. God has a plan. Let's roll with him. So we're going to pick up our story in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. We are now in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, if you want to turn there with me. This gives you a little bit of an idea on what it, what it was like from Moses' perspective. It says, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages, that means their little tribes, from the wilderness of Sinai, that's the big mountain, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran, go to verse 33. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of Yahweh was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he would say, Return, O Yahweh, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Okay, so this is the, we're going to do it, we're going on it, we're all excited about our big camping experience, and then immediately it goes bad. Pick it up in Numbers 11.1, that next chapter, 11.1. And the people complained in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. When Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, so Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Why, why like, burn Scarum? I know they have a lot of issues, but is God being over-aggressive? Is is God being too hard on them? I mean, these are human people, and yeah, we went through the golden calf incident, and yeah, they've blown it a whole bunch of times, but is God being too hard on them? Because I think we, we, we look through that lens a lot, well, God's, God's being too hard on me. We're going to talk in a later message about what it means when God pushes you too far. I believe that's actually tomorrow night. But is God being too hard on them? Why is he scaring them? Well, clearly they're out of line, but 
Here's what's interesting to me. It is that I think the two primary reasons why God is so extreme with Israel is, number one, if he lets them get away with it at the beginning, he's going to have to keep correcting them for the rest of the 40 years. You guys know this kind of parenting style? Like, if you really never say no to your kids and then you try to throw in a boundary, that doesn't work. They're not used to that pattern. I feel like what, uh, what God does, he says, listen, we're not going to argue about this all the time. I'm going to come in hot the first time, and I need you to listen to me. So he's trying to get through to them quickly. That's not mean. That's nice that he's not like, and I'm going to continue to burn you all for the entire 40 years. It's actually his kindness. But the second reason why I think he's so extreme with them is simply this. They are living an outward lesson for the rest of mankind. We are picking up the Bible, opening it up, and we're learning what we ought not to do. So the Old Testament is full of extreme stories. And you're like, well, I don't know if that really happened. Of course it happened. That's why they wrote it down. There are thousands of years that it covers, and so they wrote down the big stuff. But they are living examples of what we're supposed to learn from, right? And so we may see their extreme example. God may not do that to us, but we at least can learn the story. They are a walking testimony. Let me go ahead and just adjust this real fast. Where did it, where did it go? Hold on one second. Do, do, do. All right. Um, so what were, they, what were they doing that was so bad? They were complaining. What's wrong with complaining? Isn't it okay to walk through and go, wow, my life's really hard? Isn't it okay to be able to comment on, man, I feel miserable. I don't want to do this anymore. Isn't that a normal human response? And I, I think that that's how we justify it, yeah? God, I'm just commenting. God, I'm just sharing my heart. But complaint is different. Why? Because you're not sharing information. There's a motivation behind it. What's the motivation behind complaining? Complaining involves accusation that it's someone or something's fault. Another biblical word for that is grumbling, yeah? Why does it tick off God so much? Because it means to mutter in discontent. Why are you discontent? It means that you and I think that it should be different, but it's not. Well, why should it be different? Because they're all based on assumptions. The assumptions are what? We're important. Our opinion should be considered. Our assumption, we deserve more. Our assumption, things should go better for us. Where did we get those assumptions? Like, why would you be disappointed if you didn't have any expectations? Why do you have an expectation everything should go well for you? Because you're a big deal, right? Where did that come from? You see, at the heart, and the reason why God gets so mad at complaining is it ultimately stems from pride. God, why would you do this to me? I'm sorry, who are you? When we complain, Lord, you're doing it wrong. Lord, you're not treating me as I ought to be treated. Hmm, something's wrong there. True servants of God don't struggle with pride 
as often. Why? Because it's not about them. Now, I, I can say that, and you're like, yeah, 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 it's easier to say than do. Oh, I agree. I got all kinds of problems in my life. I'm not, I'm not judging you. What I'm saying is that true servants, if we can get into the mindset of a true servant, will struggle less with this because we are no longer about ourselves. You go, well, that's kind of impossible. I disagree. I'll give you three examples. Teenager mom Mary. How old do scholars believe that Mary was when an angel came to her and told her that she was going to be pregnant? What's that? 13 or 14. Do you guys remember the response? Hey, you're going to have a child. She's like, yeah, how's that going to work? And he's like, the, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. What was her response? Okay, whatever you need. Hold on a second. Nobody else responded like that. Joseph didn't necessarily respond like that. Zechariah with John the Baptist didn't exactly respond like that. A bunch of people didn't respond like that. That is a 13, 14-year-old girl, and she's like, whatever you need, God, I'm in. There was no, why would you do this to me? Because it's going to ruin her life. She knows that. Here's a second example, John the Baptist. John the Baptist has a very unusual calling. His whole entire calling was to promote Christ and become less, and he owned it. He literally said the phrase, he must become greater and I must become less. And he did it all the way till he died. He was such a servant that he was like, listen, it's not about me. As a matter of fact, he had these guys walking. He had his crew. One of his crew was Andrew. I don't know if you guys knew that. And it's one of his disciples. And you got to remember, when you have disciples, they kind of support you. They're kind of like your little church, and you get your, your wages from them. So when you lose them, that's bad because you don't have anyone to support you. He's walking along. Jesus is crossing on the other side of the street. And what does he say? There's the Lamb of God. And they were like, hold up. What would you say? like, there's the Lamb of God. Then why are we hanging with you? He's like, I don't know. I don't think you should. <laughs> they went over and they joined his team. And John goes, that's why I'm here. Third example, Jesus himself, right? Not my will, but thy will be done. The best example of responding in a humility way is the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because I don't know if you remember that story, but it says Jesus was so stressed out that he was sweating in an intense way. It says, like great drops of blood. In other words, it was heavy sweat. And that means that he was tripping hard because in his humanity, he was freaked out. He knew what it meant internally. He knew what it meant physically. He knew what it meant in all ways. And he literally cried out and said, Father, is there another way? Do you remember that? It got to be pretty bad because Jesus kind of does whatever the Father wants him to do. But this time he said, can we do it different? And he actually went back and he was trying to pray multiple times, if you remember that. There's no recorded response, right? But here's what's interesting. He said, in the end, Dad, it's about you. So if this is what has to be, I'm in. 
But notice, he was still able to vent his feelings. I think that sometimes Christians believe that if you're a good Christian, you're a stoic, which means you shove all your feelings, you shove everything down, I don't want to talk about it. Well, if I ever have a problem, I don't want to talk about it. I want to appear like I have a, uh, my whole life's together, and I got a plastic smile on, and I went to all the right schools, and I got to make my friends think that I'm amazing. And Jesus brought his friends into a garden to watch him melt down. They actually weren't very good backup, side note. They were supposed to intercede for him, and they kept falling asleep, right? He knew that. But he still let them see him. Why do we have it recorded? Because he brought people in and let them see his humanity. But in the end, he sinned not. Father, I am dying here. But if that's what it has to be, I'm in. That's our example. Look at verse 4, Numbers eleven four. Right after the first problem, we got another problem. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Oh, poor baby. They have miracle bread. Now remember, we're not all that into it that long. We were into it about a couple months, maybe a month and a half, right? And they're like, this is horrible. It says, who started that conversation? The rabble. What's interesting about that is that the rabble is contrasted with the children of Israel. So it probably isn't Hebrews. So who is it? It's probably the Egyptians that came with them. Why are they complaining? Because they had a very different standard of living. They weren't the slaves. They actually came out because they were moved in the moment and they followed the Israelites out. But they were not slaves. They were like, man, I did have it better there. And they became agents of discontent. You got any of those in your life? Are you that? Are you the one in your friend group? You're the agent of discontent, always talking about, oh, you know what so-and-so has? Oh, you know what? I never had this. Well, you know what? I don't really have. Are you the one instigating with your friends why things are not great? What gave you the right to do that? I already have discontent in my heart as a human being. I don't need you to add to it. Are you an agent of discontent? Are you the one that maybe constantly talks about what could be and it's not? There are certain personalities that have certain struggles. All personalities have struggles, but sometimes we have cynics among us. And you're a cynic because you were born a cynic. It's just kind of part of your nature, but you need to be able to submit it to the Father and let Him purify it so it can be used for what it was really built for and not simply complaining. You following me? Just because that's how you are does not mean it is godly. Doesn't mean that it's healthy. Doesn't mean that it's nice. Doesn't mean that it's right. All of our personalities have pros and cons. We have to submit our natural personality into the Lord and let him purify it out. Jesus was all the different personalities. There's nothing wrong with how God built you, but you got parts of it that need to be redeemed and parts of it that need to be flourishing. And then I realized they were all suffering from the Dory effect. Anybody see the movie Finding Nemo? Raise your hand. 
It's a godly movie. Yeah, godly movie. Okay, good, good. Fantastic. Uh, if you have not seen Finding Nemo, it is all about this little clownfish family. They have tragedy at the beginning, side note. Very sad beginning. Anyway, it's a dad and his little guy. And his little fish gets captured by somebody. And the whole rest of the movie, he is finding his son named Nemo. Nemo's on an adventure, so dad goes on an adventure. So he's swimming in there, and he runs into a blue fish. It's a female blue fish, and her name is Dory. And he's like, he's like, hey, have you seen a boat? She's like, seen a boat? Yeah, I've seen a boat. It went this way. Follow me. And she's swimming along, and he's following her. And she keeps looking at him, and she starts darting and like, whoa, dude, what are you following me for? And he goes, she goes, why are you following me? He's like, because you're going to show me the boat. She goes, boat? Oh, I saw a boat. It went this way. And he goes, something's wrong with you. She goes, oh, it's happening. I suffer from short-term memory loss. And this whole character can't remember what just occurred. So she keeps repeating herself and repeating herself and drives him crazy. It's a super cute movie. This is us. Look at how they complain. Oh, if I could only go back to Egypt. I'm sorry, wasn't Egypt horrid? Isn't that why you called out to God? <laughs> you keep forgetting what yesterday was like. Oh, the good old days. No, the good old days you complain just as much as you did right now. Right? We keep doing this thing like, oh, it was always better then. It was always better then. It was always. No, it wasn't. Until Jesus comes back, it's not good then. <laughs> it's not good now. But we play this game, and it stirs discontent in our hearts. Oh, if I could only go back to, it wasn't awesome. I know you've kind of shined it up in your mind. It was tough then. You know, I, it's so interesting because uh, those that lived through the Depression, it's hard to say the good old days. You're like, oh, you, you mean the Depression. You mean one of the most difficult times in our entire history. Then people go, oh, you remember the good old time? I'm like, uh, I'm sorry, when were those? Uh, well, they complain, they complain, they complain, and Moses snaps. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. They're very sad. Everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of Yahweh blazed hotly. Oh, <laughs> God's ticked off. Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight? You lay all the burden of all these people on me. What, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? What, where am I supposed to get meat to give all these people? They're weeping before me and they're like, give us meat, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you're gonna treat me like this, kill me at once. Yeah, Moses has kind of had enough. Kill me now. Okay, so Moses is, <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but Moses has a bit of a temper, <laughs> right? Remember when he kind of crashed the Ten Commandments and, and he was like really aggro, <laughs> really aggressive on everything? So he's like, God, if this is how you're going to do it, just kill me. God has to deal with a lot of drama with us, huh? Oh, should I just kill you now? Okay. But what's intriguing about it is God said, you know what? I actually have a solution. 
I want you to gather 70 of your elders, and I'm going to take the Holy Spirit that is on you, and I'm going to put it on them, and they'll help you carry the burden. And so they do that. What's interesting is two of them didn't show up to the meeting, which you would assume that if Moses calls a meeting, everybody shows, but that's not true. And they get the Holy Spirit too. And Joshua is livid. Moses, should I go shut them down? They didn't come to our meeting. How dare they disrespect you? And Moses had the most interesting response. Here's what he said. I wish everyone were prophets of God and had the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? His dream is our reality. He could never imagine a day when everyone had the Holy Spirit. He was the only one with it. Then he got 70 and he was like, this is awesome. We are post-Pentecost, people. That means we are the fulfillment of that dream. He was like, if everyone had the Holy Spirit, everything would be so easy. <laughs> right? <laughs> it really hasn't been. <laughs> but here's what's interesting. What was the perception I've, I've been very embarrassed to find that I have an awful lot of competition in my spirit for people in ministry. I'm the vice president in my area of our whole region of getting pastors together. I'm Mr. Unity Guy. And I'm still embarrassed when something goes super good at another church and I can't celebrate it with my full heart. That's embarrassing. I'm supposed to be leading by example. And outwardly, I actually look pretty awesome. But I know my heart. But here's what's fascinating about Moses' response. Ultimately, here's what he's saying. When the work is truly plentiful, we appreciate help. We're not jealous. If we get jealous... It means we're probably not doing the work we think we're doing. Let me give you an example. If the work that God gave us to do is to seek and save that which is lost, there's an awful lot of lost people. Wouldn't we be excited that more churches are showing up, more pastors are doing the work, more people are out in the field? Yes? So I'm sorry, what work are we doing? If we're building our own kingdom, it's going to be a problem. Does that make sense? And so it, I kind of have to keep putting myself through these filters and going, wait, wait, wait. If you were truly interested in what God was interested in, how in the world did competition ever enter your mind? There's way too much work to do. Why wouldn't you automatically, like Moses, go, oh, man, we need all the help we can get. Bring it. What do you got? Come on, let's do this. New church plant, new church plant, new church plant. What about this church? Oh, our church split off, and they wanted to... If we were truly about God's work, I think we would worry less. That's tough though, huh? Yeah. There are wise adjustments that I think that we need to do to properly steward what God gave us. If you guys remember when Jethro, his father-in-law, said, dude, you're going to kill yourself. You need to set up structure. 
That was a wise adjustment. He did it again. You need other people to have the Holy Spirit. You need more leadership that will seek me for you, and they will advance the kingdom. Sometimes our Christianity is too exhausting because we're doing it wrong. You always have to default back and balance between Paul saying, I'm a poured out drink offering, and Jesus saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You got to always vacillate and say, Lord, is it difficult in my life right now because you've asked me to do something difficult? Or is it difficult right now, Lord, because I'm not doing it right? I'm adding too much religion on me. I'm adding too many uh, steps on me. I'm adding too much weight on my back. I'm adding too much. Are you trying to save the world by yourself? Part of what the church is supposed to do is disseminate responsibility so that we're all priesthood, right? And that we're all out there doing the ministry. If you're doing it all by yourself, you're doing it wrong. No wonder you're exhausted. Of course, because that's not how it was set up. At some point, are we allowed or should we go to retreats like this and reflect back and say, Lord, what weight am I carrying you never asked me to carry? What brick is in my pack that I wasn't supposed to put in there? Just because I'm zealous for you doesn't mean I have to do everything. As a matter of fact, I might be burning out too quickly because I'm doing a bunch of stuff you never asked me to do. Yeah? I have to ask that question all the time. All right. So then, sure enough, God gets ticked off and, he, and he, uh, there was a very great plague. But we're going to move to the next story. In chapter 12, the second major thing that hits Moses and pushes him is what I called the deepest cut. And what was it? The Bible says that Miriam, and she's named first, Miriam and Aaron, whoever's named first in the Bible usually means they're the leader. Miriam had a problem with Moses' Cushite wife. Now, scholars don't know what this means. Cushite is probably more similar to the word Nubian. Nubian means black. She has a problem with his black wife. Now, we have a question. Is she talking about Zipporah? Or did he get another one? We don't know. But there's something racial that is going on that Miriam is agitated by Moses' wife being around. And when I say racial, it could be everything from she's not Israelite, She's not one of us. She's not part of the chosen people. Why is she here? Now, you got to ask. They brought Egyptians out with them. They have a whole bunch of people in the, in the mix. Why are you suddenly have a problem with it? And if it's Zipporah, why have we waited over a couple years to bring this up? If you had a problem with it, why didn't you bring it up right when she showed up? Moses has been with her for 40 some odd years, and now you got a problem? Then all of a sudden, at the exact same time, it says, and then Aaron and Moses, which means Aaron was taking the lead, they said, I can't believe you are in charge. Aren't we all prophets? Don't we all have the Lord here? And what? You're the big dog, right? Baby brother? That's interesting. Aaron's three years older than you. He's the high priest. I'm your older sister that should have just dumped you in the Nile. 
I should be in charge. So this whole idea about, oh, prince of Egypt, look at you, you're the big dog, you get to be with, with God. And nobody knows, scholars wonder whether or not this was spurred when the 70 elders were given the Holy Spirit and they were not part of it. And so they started speaking and grumbling against Moses. Why do I call it the deepest cut? Because it was the closest people to him. What was the bottom line problem to this? Was it really about the Cushite wife? Was it really about Moses being in charge? What's the real problem? It's jealousy. How do we know that? Because the Bible said it's jealousy. <laughs> right? Not exactly a scholar on that. <laughs> right? So why is it so bad? Because I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your life, but you were taken to task and your motive was questioned by someone that was closest to you. That will kick your legs out from under you. Who knows him better than his brother and his sister? And they said, oh, you're trying to make yourself a big deal. Has anyone ever said something about you that was not true, but it made you question yourself? I've had that happen a lot. I, I get a lot of criticism because I'm a public figure. Everybody's got a problem with me. And when they do, a lot of times in my insecurity, I'm like, are they right? Am I blind to something? Am I really that way? I get charged a lot in my life that I'm arrogant. I have to ask this question all the time. Am I arrogant? Because I'm super loud, I'm very confident, and I hold myself very strong, so I'm very directive. So people assume because of my demeanor that I think I know everything. And I am intelligent, so they go, oh, he knows everything. No, I don't, nor do I think that, nor do I believe that. It's one of the reasons why I'm so verbal about me having panic disorder and having to be on medication and all these other things. You guys, how am I supposed to be arrogant? Half the time I can't even get on a plane. What do you want me to be arrogant about? It's all God or it's nothing, that's it. But I'm charged all the time with being arrogant. And it makes me question, maybe I don't even know myself. Maybe I am arrogant. This is what they did to Moses. You're arrogant. And he went, wait, I am? I don't, I don't think I am. Here's, how long was this stewing? How long were they mad that Moses was in charge? Probably from the beginning. Do you know how many problems in a church or in a marriage or in a family have lasted for years because no one's willing to confront in an appropriate way or bring it out on the table? They've been stewing about this stuff. How long has he been married to this woman? Decades. Now it's coming out? There's something about Christianity where Jesus has an expectation of transparency. Guys, we can't let it stew. If we let it stew, we get worse and worse and worse and more and more angry. Then suddenly, we're fighting about stuff that's not even really what it's about. It's actually about something else. Am I just talking to myself? All right. Look how God responds. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. Uh-oh. The three of them came out. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. They both came forward and he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, 
I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I'll speak with him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak of it against my servant Moses? And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. Wow. That's pretty hardcore, yeah? Then, of course, Aaron cries out, oh, Moses, we are so sorry. You've got to help, sister. You can't just leave her like that. So Moses intercedes for her like he always does. And he's like, please heal her. And God goes, all right, I'll do it because you asked. However, she disrespected me. Keep her outside the camp for seven days. Everyone needs to know, you don't challenge my man. Whoa. Now, this is where I think that in, in our hearts, when we're very self-centered, we go, man, I wish God would get my back like this, right? Like, that would be awesome. Every elder board meeting that goes bad, a cloud comes down. Three of them are leprous. I'm like, See? Totally knew it the whole time. What's the problem with that? Because a lot of times we're the Aaron and Miriam. You sure you want that to happen? You and I might be the leprous one at the end of the meeting. Ouch. And now it's God's turn to be disrespected. We're going to go to our final story. We're in Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to tell you this story. I think you know this one. God leads them right to the promised land. He's like, all right, guys, you ready? Let's do this. I want a representative, somebody bold, somebody strong, somebody sneaky. I need somebody to spy for me. I need one from every tribe. How many tribes are there? Twelve. All right, I need 12 guys. Uh, I'm going to grab uh, Joshua. He's already in. Uh, Caleb, you're in. Uh, who else do we got? Right, and all these guys, they all come in. He's like, all right, here's what you're going to do. I need you to go out there. It's going to take a little probably more than a month. I need you to go as far as you can go, and I want you to find out what we got. We're about to move into the promised land, and I'm not sure how this is going to go. We need a plan. Let's go, strategy. Go, 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 go. So they all take off. They're gone for 40 days. That's kind of a long trip. They come back, and they're bringing some of the fruit. And they said, all right, there's pros and cons. The pro is, dang, that place is legitimate. Like, there is so many resources. There's so much stuff in there. This is truly a land like was promised. I remember when we were all in Egypt and, and our parents were arguing with Moses. Anyway, it's not important. So he said that it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. That is absolutely a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're like, all right. So what are the cons? Well, there's giants there, and we're all going to die, and there's big, huge cities, so we're not going. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry, what did you say? Well, I said we are not going. All of a sudden, Caleb and Joshua go, dude, you don't speak for me, and they step to the side. Moses, you sent us in there. You told us that it was God's fight. If God's with us, we can do anything. I don't care if the Nephilim giants are in there, which, by the way, we saw some of them, and they're super freaky. Anyway, I don't care what's facing us. This is what God said. We are men of faith. We can do this. 
The other 10 are like, oh, heck no. No, we're not. Dude, okay, you guys can go. The two of you can go. We're not going. Because I'll tell you, we're going to get slaughtered. We are not warriors. We do not have any of these abilities. Do you remember what happened when the Amalekites attacked us? We barely got through that. It was a supernatural save. Man, every time we get beat up, there's always people, and they could wipe us out at any time. And everybody starts melting down and melting down. Now, all of a sudden, the people are hearing this conversation. They're starting to get afraid. They're like, we're definitely not going. They're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They're like, we need another leader. They're like, I wish we were still slaves in Egypt. It starts getting out of control. Joshua and Caleb are like, God can do this. And everybody says, no, he can't. And they said, we want to stone Moses and Aaron. Now, this is, that's a bad elder meeting. <laughs> right? When you get done, like, and somebody's ready to throw rocks at your head, that's a problem. And God is not having it. He shows up at the tent of meeting and he says to Moses, I will strike them all with pestilence and kill them all and start over again. Haven't we had this conversation already a couple times? <laughs> and Moses is like, no, KK totally got No, it's going to make you look bad. Don't do that. Right? And he's like, God, come on, come on, come on. Uh, God, you're good, you're super kind, you're really patient, you're doing all, and God's like, all right, that is true. However, none of the men, none of the people, 20 and over, that have ever seen my miracles here in the desert, none of them are getting in. They have tested me now 10 times. Interesting, if you look at the, the map and they go to the promised land, it hasn't been that long and they already tested God 10 times. God's like, oh, I'm ready to wipe these people off the face of the earth. I am so mad. By the way, Caleb and Joshua, those guys are legit. They can go, right? Because they're pretty amazing. I will send you into the wilderness and you will all walk and go nowhere for 40 years. And I'm just gonna wait till you all die. Why 40 years? One year for every day they were spying out the land. That's why it was 40 years. And also it allowed all the people to die. Which, by the way, I always thought was kind of funny. Funny not, ha ha, well. I, th I think it's funny because you're waiting for that last guy to die, right? And you're like, oh, he's the last one. I want to go to the promised land. And he has a cough and everyone looks at him. <laughs> How do you feel? How do you feel? Bob, Bob, you Okay. God says, by the way, the 10, you guys instigated all of this. You're gone. Kills them all with a plague. God's not messing around. All the people freak out when they see the death. They see that God shut them down. They're all upset, and they do a mega overcorrection. Fine, we'll go. We're going right now. And they all run in to try to fight and they just get demolished. And it, it's funny, when it says that, you can just hear the exasperation in Moses and God going, oh, you guys, ah, oh, I don't even know what to do with you. Hmm. People are so messy, right? So hard to do this Christian thing, and you're like, man, I'm messed up, and everyone I'm leading is messed up, but... God tells me to love them, and I, I got to intercede for them, and I got to, I don't know, Lord, it just feels like ups and downs. And he goes, yeah, I know. 
I know. When God revealed himself to Moses, one of the key things that he said was, I'm a God who does what I say I'll do. And I'm really loving. I have a tremendous amount of patience. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a guy you can walk over. I love my rebellious kids. I've been pretty hard on Israel, but in general, I just need you to understand. I would have killed them a long time ago if I didn't love them so much. It's hard, though. They break my heart a lot. And I know that you guys are called to work with me, and I know that it makes your hearts hurt. But we're going somewhere. I just need you to remember the vision. The vision is that I sent my son, and we're getting stuff figured out. Ultimately, we're going to square it up. Satan, we're going to get rid of that guy, get rid of the sin issue. And you know what? We're going to be together. But until we get there, it's hard. It's hard. I get it. That's where we close our story. Questions, comments? Any, anybody have any reflections or questions on what we talked about? I'll be handing off to Art in a second, but I just want to, while it's still fresh, any questions? You heard that, the disrespect in the church, the discontent, it's, it's like a cancer. Um, disrespect is dangerous. It's one of the reasons why God came in so strong, because when there is a broken trust with leadership, Satan jumps all over it and just starts insidiously doing the gossip channels. And... It's, we're not old school, right? We're not Old Testament where God's going to go move away from their tents, you know, and then opens up and everybody falls in. There's so much grace, it makes the church messier today. But we have to understand if we are part of the problem, we're making things harder for God. Be very careful of the the anger, the discontent in your own heart when you go to church. I'll just tell you as a senior leader, um, I do things wrong. Our church is not perfect. I really, we're trying to do our best. And yet I got people leaving the church and they're mad about this, mad about that. And we're human. We're doing our best, right? And so if there could be some true grace because what happens is a lot of really good Christians, they don't like what leadership did. They don't like how they were hurt. And so as good Christians, they suck it up as long as they can. The problem with that is it's still there. They'll eventually go. What I'd rather have is it to be processed through as opposed to stuffed down. Does that make sense? So if you do have some hurts, if you do have some pains and things like that, be very careful of doing the stuff it down thing. It's much better to process. Anybody else? Final thoughts? Yeah? Yes, sir.
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Nicholas was highlighting something that we're going to be talking about um, in part six of the series, that if you have internal idolatry, he was talking about how the church has been infused from so many falsehoods. And when you have that type of deterioration, the enemy is always trying to sow seeds of problems. What we're going to find out in part six is that there was a lot of that. We're going to talk about it a little bit tomorrow night as well, but there was a lot of that in Israel. They were intermixing with different people and they were letting different things get in. It was disintegrating what God was trying to do. And before Moses stepped out as a legacy move, he put in structures whereby to purify the body of Christ, well, to purify the children of Israel. And so we'll be talking about that in six, so I appreciate that. And then, sir, you had something. Make a plan. It's an interesting question. Uh, was it? Was it? Did Moses make a sin by sending in a bunch of people to give their human assessment? Right. I mean, as opposed to going, listen, I don't even care what's in there. We're going in there. God told us to go in there. We're going in there. Right. Um, I don't. So I, I. I personally don't. It could be. Absolutely. Uh, the reason why I don't is because historically, all through the Old Testament, God was cool with plans. So, for example, he would say, all right, I want you to spy out this. I want you to spy out this. I want you to do this. He would send, there's, once they get in the promised land, they end up doing that a lot. And I don't think that that was bad. It was the faithlessness of the people that came back and gave a bad report. And it ended up infecting everybody. So, I don't think that Moses blew it. Um, I think in retrospect, he would have thought he blew it because he would have went, oh, that was on me, right? Like I let a bunch of people that didn't have faith go in there and try to make a plan. That was a terrible idea. I think he probably would have said, man, I wish in retrospect I would have just walked him in there. But I see too many other patterns in the Old Testament of God encouraging plans, strategies, spies. And so I'm okay. I think it's okay, but I don't know. That's a tough one. That's a great question. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I, so God seems to be pretty good with it, um, but I think at the same time, who he sent may well have been selected better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he was like, hey, everybody give me your representative. I, I think that that may have been a leadership failure when you would go, okay, this is going to scare everyone that goes in there. Okay, I need faith-filled men like Joshua and Caleb. I need 12 of those guys. He only got two. Which, by the way, if you ever want to do a study in a person that's really intense, look at Caleb. <laughs> when, we get to the, when he gets to the end of it, he goes through this whole thing. That guy is hardcore. Um, all right, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, I'm going to hand back over to Art as he has some announcements for us. And he's going to pray.